The healthcare industry has undergone transformational change in the past 10 years, especially as it relates to the implementation of technology. Even so, there's much more to do and many companies are out there doing it, but you don't know about them. At Intrepid Healthcare, our podcast will bring you the crazy ones, the rebels, the troublemakers, the ones who see things differently. The people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world in healthcare. So sit tight and enjoy as we tell the story of another thought leading trailblazer. Welcome back to Intrepid Healthcare. I'm your host, Joe Lavelle, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today with another trailblazing innovator. We're going to get right to it today. We're joined by Dr. Jason Richardson, psychologist, speaker, and author of It's All BS, We're All Wrong, and You're All Right. Dr. Richardson, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Well, thanks so much for making the time today. Before we start our discussion, could you take a few seconds and tell the audience about you and your background? Yeah, I took a circuitous route to get here. I spent 15 years as a professional athlete, raced BMX bikes, yes, the little kid bikes, <laughs> and raced them. We raced on dirt tracks. Some of them have asphalt turns with jumps and turns, so it's basically riding pedal bikes. I was able to do that for 15 years, making a living doing that, traveled the world, was able to win some big events, NM Games in 2007 and the World Championships in 1994. Those are kind of nice capstones on the front and back end of my career. And then throughout my whole racing career, I always went to school. So I always said that racing bikes was my excuse to stay in school and staying in school is my excuse to keep racing bikes. So, so on my way, I got my undergrad from the University of San Diego in philosophy, went on to get my master's in business. And then I had an accident in 2006. I, I broke my leg, my femur, and on my mend, on my way back, I actually was sitting next to a, probably my third race back, which a lot of people were thinking I was crazy for racing again, but I just wanted to go out on my own terms. I think my second or third race back, I was on a, on a flight and sitting next to a couple, and the gentleman was a psychologist, and his wife was a marriage and family therapist. We just got to talking, and it seemed like a great fit for me. So I'd, that was probably in October 2006, and then... That January of 2007, I was on my way to getting my master's in psych and eventually my doctorate. So here I am. And then since then, I've been able to parlay that and plug myself back into the cycling community and, and the business community because just the blend of sports and an MBA and then having the psychology degree, it's taken me a lot of places, able to do corporate trainings, do a lot of speaking gigs and on the deck at the X Games and on the grounds at the Olympics, and I'm, I'm actually in the midst of another Olympic run with several athletes this year. Uh, sounds very exciting, and you've written a book. It's called It's All BS. We're All Wrong, and You're All Right. Tell us about the book. Give us a 10,000-foot overview. Yeah, 10,000. Let's see. We might even go 20, but... <laughs> okay, perfect. Yeah. But the BS, is it's definitely a play on words. I wanted, obviously, a catchy title like every book title or, or publisher would want for a book. And the BS is not what most people think it stands for. It's for. It stands for belief systems. I love it. And the belief systems dictate how we feel, what we do, what we earn, and eventually our ultimate results. So my deal is with the book is getting the reader to look at things in a way that challenges their perception. I believe if you challenge your perception, your results can change. So through the book, I talk about 
our belief systems and how they got there and how the brain works and what parts of the brain are responsible for certain things we do <laughs> or don't do for that matter and, and how the brain craves safety, whether it's physical, emotional, psychological, or it's finding that balance, not fighting against yourself, but working with yourself so that you can win more rather than not. I use some personal stories in there, both from some clients and then just my own story racing and, and even some family stuff. And then I just kind of weave in there and I have, I have a lot of fun with helping challenge people's perspective. So it's, 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 it was a fun process writing this book. And, and that's, that's ultimately what it's about. I give 15 action steps that, that somebody can do as soon as they finish the last page or even before they get to the end of the book, they can take those action steps and implement them in their day so that they can start looking at things and thinking about things in a different way, which, like I said, ultimately will, will lead to a different belief system or, like I would like to say, a bolstered or a, an evolved belief system that, that's more proactive rather than reactive. And you're right, Jason. It's a great read, and it's a quick read. I read it back and forth between my home in Fairhope, Alabama, and Atlanta. It's a short flight. It's a 50-minute flight, and I had time in the airport before each, so probably three hours total, maybe three and a half by the time I finished it and went back and reviewed a little. And it's a great read, very inspirational. But you set up my first question perfectly. I'll ask you, how does challenging one's perception change one's results? Yeah, it actually started, and I'm not going to take credit for it. It's actually started with a TED Talk that I watched, and it was this magician. I think he was German. I think his name is Marco Tempest. And he does this fabulous thing with people's cell phones from the crowd. And in his basically elaborate magic trick, he talks about the brain. And I'm thinking, hey, that's my world. But really playing with this magician concept. And I was thinking, wow, that is true. I mean, because in, in theory, we know we're being lied to. <laughs> we know it. Yet we can't help what we see, right? That's the trick. But I think in life, and that's a magic trick. That's actually a performance that I was talking about. But I think in life, we tend to do that ourselves, whether it's selling ourselves short on what we really want to do versus what we think we can do. Our perspective really affects how we play the field. And, and if you see obstacles or if you see obstacles as barriers rather than obstacles, well, then that's a different take on what you're going to do about those obstacles slash barriers, depending on how you perceive them. So in, in essence, the perception I joke about, sometimes I tweet about it, the perception is the deception. We see things a certain way, and so therefore we react to them in that way. So I think if we can challenge that perception and learn to look at something from a different vantage point, even in the book I talk about four buddies watching the game, one guy's in the stands, another guy's in another part in the stands, someone's watching it on TV, and they all see the same play, and they're arguing. Well, the ball might have been in, it might have been out, the point is it doesn't matter. It's a judgment call based on those people's perspective and the lens from which they view the game. So not only do they see it physically from a different place, but they also have this lens that they put on. Maybe that's their favorite team. Maybe they want that ball to be out because they're betting on something or maybe there's all these reasons that go into that. But the bottom line is our perspective really affects how we react or even go about engaging with the world. Right. As an author, you never know which 
things are really going to resonate with your audience. I'll tell you one of the things that resonated with me, and I'll give you the background. I have a nine-year-old who wants to be a professional football player. Oh, there we so go. So I was especially inspired by your addressing the topic of having a plan B or a fallback plan. Tell the audience what you're thinking is there. Yeah, you know, I think, and, and like I said, I, I went to school the whole time I was racing, and, and, and I'll be very transparent about this. My parents, while they supported my racing wholeheartedly in school, meaning before I got to college, <laughs> were very much asking, so, Jason, what are you going to do once you get to college? Are you going to work and go to school? Or are you just going to go to school? But it never was, hey, I think you should race and go to school. It never was, I think it'd be a good idea if you go pro in racing. And, and keep in mind, I was the number one 17-year-old in the nation at the time. So in essence saying, hey, go to school because that's a great fallback. But with the fallback plan, I like to use athletes as an example, but it's when you're moving towards something, to me, plan B is just another way to get to plan A. So I, I wanted to be a professional racer. I wanted to be a world champion, possibly the best in the world, and make a living doing that. So my plan B was to go to school so that I didn't have to hear it from my parents or anyone else. <laughs> so that I could do plan A versus plan B being something completely different than the original plan. So we know the odds of becoming a professional athlete, or maybe some people don't, but but they're astronomically out of your favor (laughs) for that happening. However, that's the probability. My goal is to help people bet on their possibility and increase their possibility. So so plan B is really just another way to do and complete plan A. I love it. I love it. What do you mean by saying real things of real value to real people? Yeah, this is, uh, I mean, I'm passionate about it, but it's, it's not out of the performance playbook. It's really out of, I, I did a talk on race and inclusion and diversity. And my father is a business owner. My cousin's a business owner. I'm a business owner. And I made my wares and in a sport where there wasn't many people of color. The news or the media or or what have you, a lot of these Black Lives Matter and a lot of these causes, I'm thinking, you know, something's not sitting well with me. Don't get me wrong. I, I want justice and I want fairness for people. I don't want people to be mistreated or put in jail for things they didn't do. But I just felt like something's off here because we do live in a country where... We have Barack Obama and we have Eric Holder and we have amazing people of color and otherwise in very high positions. So my thing was like, okay, well, maybe it's not so much the color. Maybe it just comes down to can you do a job and do it better or do it well enough? And my father's a contractor in Vegas. And at the time when he moved to Vegas, it wasn't somewhat of a small metropolis now. But then it, it was <laughs> – one could argue it was a cowboy town, yet he excelled and because he could put a bid together and because he could come in maybe a, a couple hundred grand lower than the next guy or whatever the price might be. And that is a real thing of real value. So whether that person might have looked at him a certain way because of the color of his skin – It didn't so much matter when it came down to offering his service or product. And the same went with 
my cousin and the same thing went with me. I, you know, I pedaled a bike fast. And so if someone did have a reservation about someone with color, and I did experience this, I've traveled the world. I, I mean, I've, I've had conversations where people said, man, you, you're a class act. You've really changed my opinion about race or changed my opinion about what I thought a person like yourself might be like, or, and forget race, just athletes, you know, they, right. <laughs> you know, you're not a dumb jock. You're, you're actually, you have something to say for yourself. So it's, you're articulate, whatever it is. And I never, and I, I don't get offended by that. I think, okay, that's cool. And, but that's because I was offering something real of something value to someone else. You know, it's a very human interaction, like marketing genius, in my opinion, Brian Kramer talks about it called human to human and, and sharing. But that, regardless of hashtags or any of the political rhetoric we hear, we're all people bumping into each other on this planet trying to figure it out. And I think if you can help someone else figure it out or figure it out for someone else and, and help them along, whether it's in their work, their play or their life, then, then you're going to be doing all right for yourself and others. Absolutely. You talk about something called wealth management, W-E-L-L-T-H management. Tell us what that is and why it's important. Yeah, yeah. And as you can see, I love playing with words and language. Yeah, so make no mistake, we definitely, you know, money is a thing. And, and as a psychologist, a great way, a great window into how somebody thinks or what their hangups or issues might be is to talk about money and food. And especially to get that other person talking about money and food. Because it's directly linked to our survival, especially in the modern world, and linked to how we cope with things and linked to all kinds of other ways we, we go about living. So, so wealth, while I don't want to say everyone wants to be rich, but definitely when you hear the word wealth, you think money and success. But I like to, to say, okay, well, that's a form of wealth, but there's also this wellness movement and this mindfulness movement and this holistic approach to living life. So... I combine those two things to, to say wealth, W-E-L-L-T-H, wealth management. And so it's the habit, I think, of many Americans or at least people in our modern fast-paced world to like to put things in silos. This is my work life and this is my family, you know, and I, I understand having boundaries and not necessarily mixing it up too much. However, if you look at all of that, that's still part of who you are. And that's what I mean by the wealth management. So if you're this person with a family and with hobbies and passions and interests and a job or an income or, or a career, whatever you want to call it, then it's our responsibility to manage that wealth. Let's make sure it is bringing wealth, not just money, but like true wellness, wealth. So there's a responsibility to that. And that's, that's why I like to play with wealth management or mental wealth. Or <laughs> and then, you know, we go through the wealth cycle because it's life, right? Things can go up and down. And, and sometimes we get those calls in the middle of night that we didn't want or expect. Right. And I would submit you, happiness has a lot to do with wealth. I know both my parents, my mom's still alive, my dad passed away, had a really rough last 10 years of their lives. And I'm living a whole different lifestyle, so I don't follow in that footstep. Yeah, that's, man, that is brilliant. And I know that, you know, on my end, you know, I see the same thing where, you know, my peer group is taking care of their kids and their parents. And I'm noticing that, that, yeah, I mean, the happiness, I was talking to my good friend the other day, he's, he's a medical doctor, and he was saying, I think happiness is related to progress. 
And I thought that was really, really insightful. And when you say your parents' life was rough those last 10 years, yeah, when we start seeing things diminish, uh, and I'm not just talking about money or stuff, I mean, but just really our ability to do things, our ability to enjoy things, our our ability to move more freely or or just kind of have the, the health that you want, the vitality, whether it's physical or psychological, then yeah, it's not necessarily a, a great place to be in. So anything we can do, not only now, but that's sustainable to promote psychological and or physical vitality and well-being, why not? I mean, my kids look at me sometimes like I'm crazy because I, I always seem to be moving and I'll go on a ride and they say, but dad, you don't, you, you don't race anymore. How come you still ride? Because, well, one, because it's fun. <laughs> I like it. Uh, and then I have this little app on my phone that lets me know if I was faster or slower, which is, that's, that's always kind of fun. I get to gamify my own hobby. But two, I love the fact that they're seeing me be active and still going for it in my own way, because I, I want them to be able to, to do that and let, and not only just to do it, but to let them know that it's an option. I mean, I see a lot of people my age, I'm 42 in August, where they've almost resigned and kind of said, yeah, well, I'm 42. So it's, you know, it's my time, you know, they, like, like they just kind of accepted, like, I'm middle aged. So part of that. So the rule set for being middle aged is to be somewhat out of shape, somewhat unhappy, and just go to work and provide, which right. the going to work and provide thing I can get with cool. But there's this whole other piece, right? Like that's that's your wellness piece. That's where you're really going to get that couple of extra percentage points that are going to serve you exponentially in your 60s, 70s, possibly 80s and 90s. Right. Dr. Richardson, what does you define your wins mean and how do you help people do that? Yeah, that directly comes from my racing career. And I've raced at a high level for a long time. But as as many athletes, you have a 15-year pro career. I had my fair share of slumps and and then just economic downturn affected sponsorships. So there was a lot of reconciling for me during those years and self-reflection. And then I, I remember that I just I started to hit a streak. And me and my buddy were, you know, we traveled to the races together and we would say, you know, we would just say, top three is winning, top three is winning. And obviously first place is winning, but we just kept it in our little group that we'd say top three is winning, where that was the win. And then having become a psychologist and working with kids and adults of, of all different backgrounds and, and in different professional spaces, it dawned on me that people do things for different reasons. Even at a professional level, professional athlete level, there are, I, I know athletes that want to go to the Olympics just to be part of the Olympics. Like that is their win. I know, say in high school sports, that some kids like being on the team and that's enough. While other kids want the championship, they want the ball. I know that uh, in business, you know, not not everyone wants to be the next Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. However, they do want to be at a certain level within their business or make a certain amount of sales. And those are their wins. What happens is when someone comes to me, whether it's a corporate client or, or even an individual person, they know they're not winning. But at the same time, if you ask what they want and what they expect, that kind of gets jumbled up and it's not that clear to them. So if if I can help somebody define their win, what they want in their heart of hearts, and then we go for that, 
it might be a semifinal appearance. It might be top 10 versus top five. But if we're speaking the same language, one, chances are much better that they'll get there because the brain likes clear messaging and the brain likes something that it understands and can see that it knows it's driving towards, one. And two is you might end up winning by default, (laughs) by mistake even, just because you're free enough to do the thing you're, you're doing. I love it. You know, I coach my son's baseball and basketball teams and you end up each year with kids from way varied levels of skills. And the first thing I tell them is, look, we're going to have some kids that are outstanding and we have other kids that are just learning. First of all, that's the natural progression because you got three years worth of kids here, Mm -hmm. three different grades. And the whole goal is to just get better. Right. Wherever you are today, we win regardless of our win-loss record, if everybody improves. And I'm going to fight like crazy to do that for, I tell the kids, for each one of you. And all I ask is you do the same back for me, and we're going to have a blast regardless of what our win-loss record is. And so far, that's working out pretty well for us, and we're having a lot of fun. Yeah, and, and right there is, an, is a perfect example of defining the win. Yeah. You've not, you've, you've not only have you, have you spoken to them individually – And give them license to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I just want to be a better, you know, I want to improve my pitching. I want to improve my, you know, my stats that that's a win. And then but then also collectively you're saying, "Okay, we win if we're improving or when we're improving and we win because we're having a good time doing it. That's almost like, you know, release of the pressure valve. And then people are kind of free to, to learn and free to get better and free to to, to actually go for the win, if that's what they want, whatever that win is. This is one that you're lucky enough to be uniquely qualified. There's only a small number of athletes that make it as far as you've made it. So how does a high-performance athletic mindset apply to business and life? That mindset, and I, I didn't figure it out until after I finished racing, and, and was able to get my clinical license and, and go through that. But what I noticed is the other peers that I went to school with, there are some people that I, I graduated with my doctorate with, and they're not yet licensed. Or if they are, they haven't yet started a practice or, or, or you know, gained some traction in their new profession. And I'm not saying that to, to pat myself on the back. I'm saying that because I just noticed that there was a difference in the way I approached accomplishing something versus the average student. I noticed that when I spoke or when I was hired, it was directly because of this mindset that I was carrying, which I wasn't even necessarily aware of until someone else pointed it out to me and said, hey, look, how did you get from here to here to here? And I just kind of explained the story. I said, well, that's the point. I'm, you know, you go to school to graduate and then I want to get licensed and I need my hours to get licensed. And I just started doing the math. I said, so I just went straight forward and went through it. You know, I had my dissertation done probably like four or five weeks before I graduated. So that high performance mindset is really about focus and action. And I think in the professional sports world, you are forced just by the nature of the game, whatever game that is, to focus and take action because it's, and if it's not, and I was in an individual sport, 
So I, I could actually be somewhat lazy in that regard, but still my competition dictated that <laughs> if I want to win, if I want to be the best, well then that, that was the choice I had focus and action. And so, you know, football, basketball, soccer, whatever the sport may be to show up every day with the perception and the understanding that you are not even have to, but you are to be at your best or at the very least, give it your best every time with a very simple, clear, singular goal. That's something that I think everyone wakes up with every morning, but I, I think it's it's way more, I don't want to say crucial, but definitely it, it's it's more apparent in professional athletics because of the money and because of the, the stage, right? So a Lombardi trophy, a world champion medal, a gold medal at the Olympics, a you know, an NBA championship, those are very singular, very poignant moments that we're talking about. And uh, there's a lot of resources that go into that. Not to mention, because it's such a coveted position, there are other people that want that position. And the brutal honesty is, no matter how fast you run, no matter how fast I pedaled, there's someone else coming up the chain ready to take your spot. So then there's this added thing of dealing with pressure. So now we're focused and we're taking action and we're learning by default to handle incredible amounts of pressure, perceived or otherwise. So that mindset translates directly into business, directly into the entrepreneurial space. And you know, the funny thing is I work with a lot of these athletes and I remember I was having dinner, I was in Argentina I'm having dinner and I have an Olympic medalist across from me. There's three Olympians at the table and we're all talking and, and they're asking me, they're like wondering what it's like to go to work every day. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so funny because it's funny in some sense, nobody really wants to be where they want to be. It's kind of like they're talking about, you know, retiring and what they might do afterwards and how, how interesting it would be to go show up and know where their check's coming from or just not have to negotiate a contract and then what it's like to go to work. So it was just, I was fielding these questions about quote unquote normal life. And so in the book, I even talk about my brother-in-law who's an accountant because, you know, yeah, you have these demands as a professional athlete, but even still there's a certain amount of, I'm not going to say relaxation, but there's a certain amount of perceived freedom around that. Whereas the accountant, he gets up every day and he's doing his thing and it doesn't matter if his pinky toe hurts and he's not going to get some, he's not going to get masseuse work done if his leg is not quite feeling right or his back's aching. And, and even if he does make an appointment, he's got to wait for his HMO or whatever it is to get him in the first time. Whereas these guys, these athletes, they, they say the word and it's almost like they have hands on them yesterday to, to take care of what they need to get taken care of. So, so there is different luxuries afforded to each group. Yet this accountant shows up every day, regardless yeah. of how he may feel or not feel, what's going on, what's not going on. And he still puts in, and especially my brother-in-law, he puts in, you know, a great amount of effort. And, you know, he's he is, in my opinion, as good at what he does as these athletes that I'm sitting at the table with. So it's kind of this this funny play where going back to perception, it's really it the only difference is the perception. And so what if somebody actually what if that accountant or account executive or CEO or entrepreneur viewed themselves in that same light or viewed what they're doing in that, that same light with that single intense focus, with that action, and perceived it in the same way? Then I think you know, that little shift 
in perspective, the intensity gets ticked up a, a few notches, and then all of a sudden, you know, those are the percentage points that make a difference in any professional setting. Absolutely. Dr. Richardson, as we come close to our close here, before I let you go, where can people go to learn more about your work and about your book? My website is the first place I'd recommend, drjasonrichardson.com. That's drjasonrichardson.com. And I can also be found on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at real, R-E-A-L, Dr. D-R-J Rich, at real Dr. J Rich. Love to, love to engage with everyone and, and have a conversation, and I'd love to bring this message to people, whether it's through corporate trainings or speaking and motivating people to enhance their belief system and take action. Dr. Richardson, it was so great to have you today. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and really giving us all the background behind some of these great topics that you cover in your book. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. And that wraps this broadcast on behalf of our guest, Dr. Jason Richardson. I'm Joe Lavelle, and we'll see you soon on Intrepid Healthcare. Intrepid Healthcare.